Derek did the clap, which we I don't normally do. I thought we were doing the clap. All oh, right, no, this right, is right. taking everyone behind the scenes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the fifth episode of American Prestige. Uh, I'm your host, Danny Bessner, uh, here, as always, with my good friend and co-host, Derek Davison, who I mistakenly referred to as Derek David Sin last week. Thank you for not correcting me, because it was absolutely humiliating. I, I, I let these things slide. It's not the first time somebody's done it, so uh, it just washes over me. The thing that happens to me, this has legitimately happened to me several times in my life. People have called me like Josh and David. Really? Which I think is really funny. Yeah. Just huh. because I think like they see my my face and they you, assume you a look particular like a background. <laughs> I look like a Josh. I look like a David. But that's that. happened to me like several times. One of my one of my uh, high school English teachers actually did it like three times in class. So that was humiliating. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I know. Yeah. Sucks. Yeah. My, my dad used to get upset with me because, you know, I'd have activities and, you know, they'd have events for parents to come to and I'd get introduced as Derek Davidson and I wouldn't say anything. And afterwards he'd be like, that's not your name. You have to stand up for your name. And I'm like, okay, dude, what? that's, I got you. That's what parenthood, this was before helicopter parenting, all you Zoomer listeners. This is when dads <laughs> yelled at their kids that's for, right. for, for constantly <laughs> letting them down. <laughs> Speaking of dads, uh, let's talk about... Oh, yeah, about, that's a good segue, uh, actually. Damn. That that worked out. That is a good... Pro- probably one of the most famous dads of the 20th century, um, uh, 21st century, uh, even. Uh, Muammar Gaddafi. Is that how you pronounce his name? I've heard Muammar. I've heard Muammar. Um, I took Arabic for a bit, but I'm not actually quite sure. You actually know Arabic, so how does well, one Well, I don't, I don't know colloquial Arabic very well. So, I mean, you know, if in the... Classical style, it would be Muammar Gaddafi or something like that, something close to that. Um, and that's Fusha, right? But, Classical right, is Fusha. Fusha yeah. It's and a- Amiya is, um, yeah. But Which I, is mostly I, Egyptian. Well, I mean, Egyptian I believe, is the most right? common because of soap operas and like TV. Right, and the film industry. And the film industry, yeah. right. But, but you know, every place has its own colloquial dialect and and pronounces things differently so i i don't i i honestly couldn't tell you you know if you wanted to do it in libyan true libyan arabic i i I'm, i would not be able to help you there and actually uh correct me if i'm wrong but i remember when i was taking arabic that the northern african colloquial arabic is actually some of the most difficult um i remember moroccan was famously difficult. well moroccan is, is very difficult i encountered this when i was in the gulf because there are a lot of expats you know, working in service industries and stuff. And, and Moroccans, there seem to be a lot of Moroccans who worked in the hotel business as like, you know, uh, on the desk or, you know, in the, in the like uh, coffee shops and such. Uh, and the cutteries, I was in Qatar, the, the cutteries had sometimes a hard time kind of interacting with them because the, the language had diverged so much. Yeah, it's really interesting. One of my good friends is a is a linguist of, of sort of the Islamic world. We should have him on to talk about that. I, I really find that stuff fascinating. There's also a lot of like Amharic influences, in particular uh, Arabic in, in the Quran, I believe. Yeah. And so it, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. It's a language that probably would, would have by now gone the way of like Latin and the Romance languages were it not for TV and, you know, kind of cross 
regional media uh, holding right. everything together. I mean, the Quran has has obviously a, a good amount of influence there as well. But like these are all a lot of these dialects are are you know could could go the way of like Fran- French or Spanish or something like that. Uh, but there are still some threads that hold them together as a as a common language. Yeah, it's really interesting, actually. Like our, our producer Jake is actually, I know, interested in Arabic. Maybe we should allow him to speak once. I don't know. Uh, we'll I, think about I don't it. Know, man. That's... <laughs> That's a bit much. That's a bit <laughs> step. But we wanted to talk today, um, American prestige listeners, about Libya and what's going on um, in Libya. And so, uh, of course, and like anything we're going to talk about on the show, Libya has a, a long and, and deep history, and we're not going to be able to get into everything. But Libya, you know, one of the first post-colonial states uh, becomes independent in the early 1950s and you right know, the 51 it becomes the era. kingdom of libya sort of in the aftermath right. of world war ii and and uh, right. decolonization King idris right. and you know you know classic british and french are, are retreating from the middle east which they you know uh, had taken over from the ottomans after world war one um for parts of it not all of it but parts of it uh and then uh in the late 1960s you get the the libyan coup which is uh led by at the time colonel um, a uh, very actually very handsome man if anyone's never seen the uh, images of young Gaddafi oh, very yeah. good looking guy a, he's good looking strapping he's a, guy he's a chad <laughs> yeah he's a he's a real chad um uh, and I believe his name was actually his nickname was the handsome one, something along those lines uh, around the time that was like his colloquial, you know, like people referred to Uncle Joe Stalin. I think his, uh, Gaddafi's was the handsome one. Um, but it's really, uh, yeah, it's a fun little fact. But it's really interesting because uh, at this time, there's sort of this cohort of mid-ranked military leaders who lead these types of nationalist coups uh, against the um the, the leading regime. So, uh, Derek, do you know what what was like going on at the time, broadly speaking, in the late 1960s? What is what are what are sort of the the strands of thought? What does Gaddafi represent at the time? Why is he able to seize power and then really hold on to it for an incredible amount of time, as many post colonial leaders, in fact, did do? Yeah, I mean, Not all, but many this did. is sort of the toward the end of a period where. Arab monarchies were not faring so well. Uh, they were, um, in general, kind of tarred by their associations with uh, colonial powers or former colonial powers, as the case may be. Um, the, the discovery of oil uh, led to a lot of, shall we say, self-enrichment on the part of Arab monarchs. Uh, and, and, you right. know... Post-colonial elites. Starting with... Um, or really, you know, the, the, the big example of the phenomenon, the coup phenomenon is, is of course in Egypt in 1952, uh, when Gamal Abdel Nasser and the free officers movement took power, um, uh, Gaddafi modeled himself quite explicitly on Nasser. I mean, he saw himself as kind of, uh, the young new Nasser and uh, tried to, you know, the encountered Nasser a couple of times and tried to, uh, you know, really become friends with him. Nasser famously sort of thought he was a, 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 a good kid, but wasn't really like uh, all that enamored of him, which is kind of sad, I think for, for Momar. But uh, um, the, yeah, the, the, the issue in, in Libya was to a great extent corruption 
the enrichment of the monarchy of Idris in particular, the um, hostility over uh, Libya's kind of association with the UK, Idris's unwillingness to kind of participate in the Suez crisis in the Six-Day War in 1967 in support of, in the former case, Egypt, and uh, in the latter case, in, in, of the Palestinians. Uh, a lot of these kind of factors built up, and it's, it's, it's a refrain that plays out over and over again kind of across the Arab world in this period. Uh, but Idris was also, on a personal level, kind of not terribly healthy. He was constantly kind of going off to Europe to get uh, medical treatments, so he wasn't. Uh, there were some fears that he was going to die and going to hand power over to the uh, his his nephew, uh, the crown prince. Uh, and so, you know, as this is all kind of going on in September 1969, he went off to Turkey, uh, either on vacation or to uh, you know get more medical treatment. Uh, and that was the point at which uh, Gaddafi and his free officers movement kind of moved in and, and took over. Right. And Gaddafi is a young man. He's 27, I believe, at the time. Yeah, and you have this kind of. And he's got, you know, he's yeah. got the Nasser kind of package of pan Arabism, very kind of cuts a very strong military figure. Um, you know, he, he's uh, practicing or preaching a, a form of socialism, Arab socialism, as, as Nasser did, uh, that promises to kind of remedy this, the inequality of uh, society. And, and, you know, so he's, he's a very attractive figure to, to, uh, opponents of the monarchy. Right, because basically you you have the end of formal colonialism, you have the rise of essentially what is neocolonialism in a lot of the decolonizing world, and you have a search for alternative world systems, essentially. And the one that's embraced by Gaddafi is this type of pan-Arab and then eventually pan-African uh, so socialism, you know, this sort of, you know, new blending of, of Marxist and indigenous traditions, um, you know, oftentimes using classical Arab sources to justify a lot of the politics if I, if I uh, remember correctly. And so you have this really interesting move and, and that's how it worked out. And then Libya became a paradise for Arabic workers. <laughs> and uh, now we are here today. Yeah, exactly. No, uh, that is not how it worked out, of course. So Libya, as all these post-decolonizing uh, uh, countries do, they enter a Cold War world uh, and, and they basically have to, uh, there are two large processes. You have the Cold War world system, which is established, I think, primarily by the United States with a significant helping uh, helping from the Soviet Union. Uh, and then you have the sort of decolonization processes. And, and states like Libya have to uh, essentially try to figure out how they're going to interact in this gigantic world system where they're incredibly weak. And so what does Gaddafi do? What is what is Gaddafi's approach to dealing with this world system uh, that he enters as a young, you know, dashing mid mid rank officer? Yeah, he's I mean, there is a sort of um parallel to what happened in Egypt where there was a, you know, Nasser was of course uh, one of the founders of the non-aligned movement but wound up being shunted toward the Soviets because the United States was quite hostile to his project and, and to sort of regarded him as a threat. You know, similar a similar thing happens uh, in Libya. Not, you know, Libya is not as, as vital a state as Egypt, but, you know, they do, he does try to kind of embrace the, the pan-Arab aspect of, of Nasserism and kind of stay you know, stay in a in a non-aligned position, but but 
it doesn't work very well and it doesn't go very well for him. Um, there's a lot of, you know, from Europe and from the United States, a lot of kind of uh, pressure is placed on Libya as we get into uh, the 1980s, of course. You know, Libya was the first Iraq, in a sense. I mean, Gaddafi was Saddam Hussein before Saddam Hussein was Saddam Hussein. Very important. Um, in the early 1980s, yeah. Gaddafi really becomes an American culture. Uh, uh, I'm not actually sure if they use the Hitler analogy, but if they I, they could could have easily. Uh, he becomes that sort of figure. There's a lot of pop culture that's anti-Gaddafi. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, anti-Gaddafi uh, rhetoric. Uh, and this is kind of joined um, to the type of like anti is broadly anti-Islamic rhetoric that you see, you know, in the wake of the Iranian revolution as well. You know, there's not much distinguishing between Sunni and Shia in American society. And, and Gaddafi becomes this boogeyman figure. Um, and then what what um, what what uh, what does he do? You know, when we're thinking of terrorism. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, he he's accused at least of sponsoring a lot of terrorism. He's accused of you know, being behind some attacks that take place in Europe, uh, which draw American airstrikes. He's accused, of course, of being behind the Lockerbie bombing. Famously, famously. the Lockerbie bombing. Uh, there are a lot of questions about whether or not he was actually behind that attack or simply kind of assumed responsibility for it after the fact. There's still a lot of open uh, question about that. Right, which is what he did quite a bit, right? There, the, the, and uh, this is, I think, a lot of the, the difficulty in, frankly, not having access to a lot of these sources. You know, you're relying on intelligence, you're relying on, on people on the ground who may or may not know. But uh, my understanding, Derek, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that Gaddafi, like, took responsibility for a lot of these attacks and his connections to them remain questionable is that accurate um it's certainly the case in in lockerbie i don't i mean i i, I couldn't go through all the attacks that have been that were attributed to him <laughs> why not or were placed how dare you? yeah <laughs> um but it's it's certainly true that there are a great deal of questions about who exactly was behind that bombing and there's there's a, a, a fair amount of evidence that it was uh not Gaddafi, but that he, after the fact, kind of uh, claimed responsibility and and you know paid out yeah, and settlements and right and after there was nine eleven right 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 um, it's right after nine eleven so uh, just for people who don't know the Lockerbie bombing was a, a plane bombing uh, uh, on a flight from Germany to I believe Detroit uh, and it exploded in, over Lockerbie Scotland and this became a, a huge event in nineteen eighty eight. Um, and so uh, Gaddafi, I think, to the end, uh, to the end, I think, never claimed that he gave an order of attack. Right. But he nevertheless accepted responsibility. Well, he, re as he I believe accepted responsibility he partly, I think, because there was a window of time after 9-11, especially where he really right. tried to pivot in a direction that would uh, improve his standing with the West. There was a... So I want to bring us to 9-11. So what is the whole thing with... And, and then yeah. the nuclear question. This is, a, I think, an enormous question of international politics, the question of nuclear proliferation. It's one we're going to return to it time and again. So the question is whether, if you're a small state, it is worth it to try to get what is referred to as nuclear breakout and nuclear weapons capability. And there's a lot of different approaches to the problem. Um, but for 
a lot of the 1980s and 1990s, this geostrategic approach for smaller states that felt threatened, particularly by the West, uh, you know, really the North Atlantic countries, which I personally think can be thought of as forming one polity. The idea was that you'd get nuclear weapons and you'd prevent invasion, right? And this is this is the, the tack taken famously by Saddam Hussein, uh, but also by uh, by Gaddafi. So so what is the nuclear issue with uh, Gaddafi, Derek? What's going on there? Um, well, I mean, he he, as you say, it's it's you know like the program in in Iraq. It was a sort of rudimentary research into nuclear weapons. Uh, he had an active program, but in in the wake of nine eleven, along with a, a number of other steps, uh, sort of famously surrendered his nuclear program, gave up his WMD program altogether, uh, very publicly. And this was a big success uh, that the Bush administration claimed that the invasion of Iraq was the thing that got, uh, caused uh, the Libyan government to give up its WMD program. And, you know, that was part of a package of things that included uh, moving away from Arab socialism uh, domestically and, you know, implementing, quote unquote, free market reforms. It included accepting responsibility for the Lockerbie bombing and, and paying out settlements. Uh, you know, Saif al-Islam, the, the, the guy we're going to be talking about here in a minute, his son, uh, famously said the only reason that my father claimed responsibility for that attack was to alleviate sanctions, was to, to basically, you know, make nice with the, the West and uh, get out from under the, the, the penalties that, that Libya was being uh, hit with. And this is really crucial for two reasons. I think one, it pr proves to a generation of policy, American foreign policymakers, that economic sanctions are this really critical tool, right? It actually forced an enormous change in policy. And then two, I think it demonstrates to leaders of the global South, um, given what comes now, which we'll now turn to, you don't want to give up your nuclear weapons program necessarily. Um, and I think this is really <laughs> critical for understanding what North Korea does, why North Korea went so gung-ho on a um on a nuclear weapons program partially not totally or not even maybe for the majority of reasons but partially because they see what happens to Gaddafi. So what happens uh to Gaddafi? So G Gaddafi has I think they called it normalization of relations with the West and what happens the the quote unquote Arab Spring breaks out and uh, how does this what what yeah, happens I in mean, Libya? Protests break out in Libya uh, not long after they they broke out in Tunisia which is the, the sort of ground zero of the Arab Spring. Gaddafi's response uh, is not unlike the response that Bashar al-Assad will have uh, when they process break out in Syria uh, shortly after, which is to resist and, you know, go after the protesters. And this sparks a civil war. Uh, Derek, the, what, what, before we move on very quickly, the Western yeah. media is crucial here. Um, I, if you were around at the time, um, I remember the dead, uh, the the deadly beast, <laughs> Freudian slip. The Daily Beast was posting <laughs> really brutal photographs. Do you remember this? Like of, of people ripped apart, of, of like a, as brutal as I had personally ever seen in Western media sources. Um, the G Gaddafi's response to the protests. Do you I, don't, remember? I don't remember those photos, but it's I mean it's very of a piece with you know to jump ahead the intervention by nato which you know the the civil war began not long after the protests so you know early 2011 the nato campaign began about may it looks like or so 
they did impose. They, they started kind of, you know, with a no-fly zone, but the really heavy intervention didn't come until later. The sort of rhetoric behind the decision to go all in and start bombing targets in Libya and to start, you know, airstrikes against the Libyan army was that Gaddafi's armed forces were on the verge of, like, committing these unprecedented, unthinkable massacres of civilian populations in uh, Benghazi in particular was was the place that was cited most frequently. Um, and so, I mean, it doesn't surprise me. I, I didn't see these photos, you know, that you're talking about specifically, but uh, it doesn't surprise me that that was part of the package to sort of highlight the the violence of the uh, of Gaddafi's repression and the, the need to step in to avert uh, humanitarian catastrophe. And, uh, I mean, it's a bit difficult to know because we don't have the Obama administration sources directly, so we're relying a lot on memoirs. Um, and we, we might not ever have them, given that Barack Obama's presidential library, and this is really atrocious, everyone, he's actually, um, and I believe I'm correct about this, is not operating within the normal system of, of, of you know, the federal archives. So we may never have these sources. I really hope we do. But from memoirs, it does seem like there was an internal debate within the Obama administration as to whether they should support uh, an intervention. Uh, on one side, um, if I recall correctly, and this is, I believe, from the Obama memoir and the Samantha Power memoir, um, Samantha Power, Susan Rice, who I believe at the time was ambassador to the UN, is that correct, in 2011? Uh, that sounds um, right, yeah. Yeah, I, she was ambassador to the UN, and I believe Hillary Clinton, who at the time was Secretary of State. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was uh, a big New York Times expose about right. Hillary Clinton's role in, in all of this. Right. Yeah. So, so basically, there's a division within the Obama administration between people uh, like Clinton, Rice, and Power who really were using the liberal internationalist line of the 1990s that the, the United States is the ind uh, indispensable nation. It needs to prevent genocide. And then people on the other side who were essentially arguing no. And Obama seemed to, you know, from what we know, really was kind of wavering as to what, what he would do. And he eventually came down on the side of Samantha Power and he supports this intervention. And he, in fact, and I, I, belie I believe him in this regard, he later says in the Jeffrey Goldberg interview, I believe, to The Atlantic, that it was the biggest foreign policy mistake yes. that he made in office. And I think this is a, a, a really important dividing line between the first and second Obama administrations. Um, I, be I, I believe, for example, that he didn't, I mean, he did do a lot of Syrian stuff, but he didn't do quite the same thing in Syria when uh, Assad uh, crossed the quote-unquote red line because no, of the Libyan. Very, he was much more tentative right. in Syria. I mean, the, the, much uh, more I, tentative. Was, I was incorrect. The, the, the intervention started in March. The NATO intervention started in March, and that was when there was this... Um, you know, fear that that uh, you know hundreds of thousands of people were going to be massacred uh, in Benghazi, and and you know we had to do something immediately. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think the the outcome here informs what Obama did in Syria or didn't do, which was to uh, you know push this red line about the use of chemical weapons, and then uh, amid claims of chemical weapons use kind of backed down and uh, decided to go through Congress, which technically is what presidents are supposed to do, but whatever. Uh, and Congress, of course, punted. <laughs> they didn't want any part right. of that decision. Uh, and so nothing wound up uh, happening at that time. Certainly the United States uh, got involved in Syria uh, through more covert means uh, and then, you know, more heavily later on. But but at the time, the airstrikes didn't uh, didn't take place. 
Yeah, and I actually follow Aziz Rada on the Syria thing, which is that the United States' biggest, um, biggest quote-unquote mistake, whether it's a mistake or not, was not letting Iran to the table very early on, and that basically, you know, set, um, set yeah, a lot of it in motion. You could, you could write whole books about how the United right. States should have allowed Iran to come to the table on any number of, uh, it's, of it's conflicts, Afghanistan for, for one and Syria for another, yeah. So let's return to Libya. So NATO intervenes. What happens? Uh, well, I mean, NATO's intervention is uh, pretty decisive. Uh, they they impose a no-fly zone. They take control of the airspace. Uh, what looked like uh, was going to be, a, you know, it looked like when they came in that Gaddafi's forces were going to put this rebellion down. It was going to be it. Uh, actually turns into... Um, a defeat, uh, you know, the, the, the rebels at this point with the support of NATO, uh, which really goes beyond its initial stated mission, as, which, as I said, was kind of motivated by this immediate kind of imminent humanitarian thing that was going to happen, this massacre of all these people. Uh, you know, that's the impetus, but the, the intervention, uh, you know, goes on for several months and turns into a regime change operation, basically, uh, which succeeds. Uh, Gaddafi winds up, uh, you know, as he's about to be um, deposed anyway, uh, you know, kind of uh, tries to flee and he's caught uh, near the city of Sirte, uh in October and is, um, you know, f- kind of sodomized, brutally, believe, right? brutally killed. I mean, really, you yeah. know, in, in, in video. a horrifying way. Um, and that's supposedly the end of the conflict. Of course, the conflict is is not even really ended to this day. Uh, but that's the end of the first phase of, of what I think could be described as a 10-year uh, and, and still going civil war. Right. And so I think this is also we often think about it in American terms, but I think this is a big lesson to the global south. And I really want to underline that, which is that if you wind up doing what the North Atlantic powers want you to do, you will not be rewarded for it. Um, And I think this is a a crucial lesson that is learned um, that you really can't trust the United States. I mean, obviously, not that that people were naive. They never really thought you could trust the United States. But I do think that the last 10, 15 years has shown that even if you play the American game, it's, you're not really going to get uh, what what you want out of it. Now, no, now I mean, this could, is, I mean, Gaddafi checked off every box. He abandoned socialism or started to. He gave up his WMD program. He, uh, you know, accepted responsibility for Lockerbie. He did all the things that the United States was demanding that he do to kind of come in from the cold and and be accepted into the quote-unquote international community. And, and he got nothing. He got no regard for it. It bought him no kind of uh, no leeway or leniency once uh, the situation started. And it's a lesson uh, that is learned very quickly. It's a lesson that's learned by Bashar al-Assad, who, uh, you know, at, at a time when not long after this, his military was flagging. This was before the, the Russian intervention. Uh, you know, there's a real, you know, feeling that he was about to be, that the rebels were about to win. Uh, you refused to go because, you know, it, the, the lesson of Gaddafi is even if you finally acquiesce and say, okay, I'm done, I'm leaving, uh, you'll still be killed. Like, you're not going to get out of this alive. Uh, and the the West is not going to help you get out of it alive. So why not just keep fighting? 
And I think that lesson is now being even more learned by the, you know, the Iranian deal and the Biden administration and the Trump and Biden administration's approach uh, to the Iranian nuclear deal, which I'm sure we'll talk about more. And you talk about in, in the second half of the episode. So what what's what's happening in Libya the last 10 years? Like, how, how could we? understand what's been going on since Gaddafi's de- uh, deposal, deposition. I don't know yeah, the correct Yeah, I mean, term. Gaddafi, uh, you know, was killed, obviously, replaced by what was supposed to be a national unity government. Um, that fell pretty quickly apart, um, certainly by um, 2014. We were back, you're back in a, in a hot war between uh, competing governments, and there was sort of a succession of attempts at forming a, a, a national unity government, and and you know succeeding governments kind of failed one on top of the other. Eventually, Derek, they before coalesce. we go on, like who who are the players here? Can you just give a broad sense yeah, well, of who's I mean, fighting it, yeah, over it's what? It's easier to to do this if we go. So what happens is the the forces coalesce around two uh, of these kind of busted attempts at at forming a government. One is based in the east. Uh, its capital is in Tobruk. Uh, it's mostly controlled by uh, a man named Khalifa Haftar, who was a general under Gaddafi, uh, later a CIA asset who lived in Virginia, uh, and uh, formed uh, uh, what he called the Libyan National Army, which I was putting quotes because it's in no way the Libyan National Army. Uh, but that was his kind of faction, um, backed by, and, and it's crucial to sort of point out the foreign influences here because they've really exacerbated uh, this conflict. Haftar's been backed by the United Arab Emirates. He's been backed by Egypt. Uh, He's been backed by Russia to some extent. He's been backed uh, a little bit by uh, Europeans, France especially, uh, as this sort of secular alternative to the other government, which has been based in or was based in Tripoli in the West, uh, called the the uh, General National Congress, uh, which was supported by uh, its main military support came from the city of Misrata and militias there. Uh, there were a lot of kind of Islamist elements that supported the GNC. Um, I, I, I hesitate to call it an Islamist government because. Both of these coalitions were, were diverse enough that there were, you know, uh, religious elements and secular elements in both. Uh, but the GNC was based in Tripoli, was generally regarded internationally as the legitimate government of Libya, but only controlled part of the territory uh, and uh, was backed by in a formal sense by the European Union, by the United States, again, as the sort of internationally recognized government, was mostly backed militarily by Turkey, uh, which has an affinity, you know, they have a mutual affinity with uh, sort of Muslim Brotherhood, again, kind of Islamist elements. Uh, Turkey viewed the the GNC as its kind of um, proxy in the Mediterranean in a way to kind of uh, establish a foothold in the Eastern Mediterranean, which is part of, you know, Turkey's geopolitical project. Uh, and these two forces kind of duked it out uh, for uh, six years, over six years, until Haftar undertook uh, an offensive uh, in 2019 into 2020 uh, to capture Trip- Tripoli and to end the war. Uh, wound up overextending himself with a lot of support from Turkey. The, the GNC and its armies were able to turn uh, the tide and kind of drive the uh, 
the Libyan National Army back to the east. Uh, and that's when the peace process really kicked in as things kind of reached a stalemate. Um, and uh, a deal was signed last October uh, where both of these governments agreed to give up power to a third new government, uh, the government of national unity. Uh, and that's where things stand now. Re-enter the scene, Saif Gaddafi, yeah. who's uh, Momar's uh, Momar's uh, uh, son, um, a fellow PhD. I believe he got his PhD from the London School of Economics. Um, very famously, uh, plagiarized uh, part of that uh, PhD. So you know, another another bright mark for academia <laughs> in, in the in the moment of its decline. Uh, good job, everybody. Um, so what's going on now? So so what are the potential? What's the state of play? What what's possible? What's not possible? Yeah, so the the peace deal uh, that the two sort of former, sort of still active warring governments signed in October uh, is, uh, I would say, off the rails, save for the uh, kind of sunny optimism of the United Nations and, and everybody who's invested a lot of resources into uh, negotiating this who wants to sort of uh, will it across the finish line. Uh, but the fact is, the first thing that the deal called for uh, was uh, for all foreign fighters, foreign mercenaries, basically. Um, Turkey sent a lot of Syrian fighters. Uh, the, there are a lot of Russian mercenaries to support the uh, Western government. Uh, Russia sent mercenaries and also recruited some Syrians to support the Eastern government. Uh, the deal called for all of those fighters to be gone within three months. And that was October, so that would have put them in January. Uh, we're in August, and they still haven't left. You're telling me they're not gone? Uh, <laughs> what a, what a, what a yeah, shock what a, and what, what a surprise. Stunning, right. And so these foreign... And these foreign uh, you know, meddlers are, are still meddling. I mean, they're still supporting their favorite factions right. to to sort of uh, so what come is out the, on top. What is the the, the plan? What is well, the, the interest? Is, is and this is where Safe Al Islam comes in. The plan is to hold an election uh, in December, a national election. This the unity government would be uh, dissolved then and replaced by the elected government. Uh, Safe is, is Safe Al Islam is talking about running it for president. Uh, it's still not clear that that election is actually going to take place. As I said, the the, the deal is kind of off the rails. Uh, they haven't established a, a legal or constitutional basis for the elections yet. Uh, that was supposed to be, that was something that was like yada yada into the peace deal. <laughs> like, we'll have this election in December and uh, somewhere along the way, yada yada, we'll, we'll have a constitutional referendum or we'll decide on some kind of framework. They haven't done that. They, they can't seem to come to any agreement on that. Uh, and so, yeah, things are things are not looking good. There's accusations flying that the unity government is now trying to, like, seize power permanently by delaying the elections. It's 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 a mess. It's not good. So what what is the international interest in Libya? Is it a Spanish civil war situation where sort of like all the streams of the age are fighting it out? Is it just these great powers or middle powers in some instances trying to destabilize the region? What What is going on? Why, yeah. why does everyone care about Libya enough to send troops and to really involve itself in this? Yeah, I mean, this this uh, there there is something of a, a Spanish civil war feel to this. Uh, I mean, at, at, a I very, so, yeah. at a very basic level, um, Europe is is invested in this conflict because Libya is a, a major oil supplier to Europe. Uh, 
Uh, and also because Libya is a major point of departure for migrants trying to cross the Mediterranean and get into Europe. Um, the chaos of the civil war contributed to that. You had, um, you know, kind of human traffickers setting up shop on the Libyan coast, running, you know, kind of open air markets and, and kind of bidding for people to uh, who wanted to get on their rickety little craft and, and try to make it across the, the sea. Um, if you go into if you kind of go into the Islamic world, there's another conflict going on here that has to do with. Uh, who's going to have influence over uh, the geopolitics of, of the Islamic world? And that's where the, the rivalry between Turkey and the UAE becomes very uh, relevant. Right. Turkey is, um, has supported Muslim Brotherhood movements around the Islamic world, era, you know, uh, supported Islamist parties throughout the Arab Spring to kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of its um, ideological point of reference. The UAE is always the, the emirati leaders have always been opposed uh to the muslim brotherhood's influence in the arab world uh, they've been opposed to islamism uh and so they're fighting they're they're sort of supporting the the haftar side that's uh, a little more overtly secular um egypt's the the egyptian government uh is also having taken power in a coup against a Muslim Brotherhood-led yeah. government in 2013 is also unsurprisingly opposed to having a, a Muslim Brotherhood-aligned government in Libya, so they've been involved uh, also on Haftar's side. Uh, it's, it's um, you know, and then there's a, there's a whole nother kind of layer to this, which is uh, Turkey's ambition to kind of exert uh, its power in the Eastern Mediterranean and, and having an alliance with Libya, uh, you know, they, they famously, the, the General National Congress and the Turkish government cut a deal uh, a couple of years ago to kind of, uh, you know, divide their maritime border to kind of delineate their maritime border that uh, cut out areas that should probably belong to Greece, for example, and, you know, uh, right. really kind of alienated everybody else in the Eastern Mediterranean. And that's rooted in you know a lot of uh, energy development there are uh, gas deposits and and some oil deposits in the eastern mediterranean that have not been exploited and of course everybody's anxious to to dig in there and, and get their piece of the pie and that that's a whole nother uh, kind of right. aspect of this so i think it's interesting structurally because one of the things that we're seeing right now is really the development of these post-Cold War geopolitical alliances as the United States reduces its presence in the Middle East, uh, as you know, the, the great power conflict shifts, uh, sh shifts more and more to East Asia. I think we're going to see a lot of these new sorts of formations and new sorts of alliances uh, that are finally, you know, not shaped by the uh, U.S. era of unilateralism. Um, so this is very much developing. Yeah, it's uh, the, the Eastern Mediterranean conflict in particular is, is interesting because because yeah, it's it's really one that that is not uh, happening uh, with any or with very little uh, American involvement. It's sort of a, right. a, a regional alignment uh, of countries, you know, two kind of competing alignments of countries that have uh, formed themselves up uh, independently of uh, sort of the imperial powers' uh, uh, foreign policy. Right. It's probably the great side of middle power conflict. Um, so uh, anyway, Derek, uh, great conversation as usual. Uh, everyone, we've got uh, our interview this week, which will go deep into uh, Iranian politics. 
Uh, and so everyone, please, you know, smash, smash that subscribe button. What, what is it? Like and review on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> uh, subscribe to our Patreon. We've got our first patrons only episode, um, $5 tier and up coming out uh, probably over the weekend with our good friends, Will Meneker and Matt Chrisman from the new podcast, Chapo Trap House. I think those guys are going to go far. They're really funny. You'll love them. Uh, and uh, see everyone next week. Thanks again, Derek. Take care. Okay, American Prestige listeners, uh, we are joined this week uh, by a very distinguished guest, Asal Rod, who is a senior research fellow at the National Iranian American Council. Uh, her work there focuses on Iran policy issues and U.S.-Iran relations. Uh, she's recently written a piece uh, called Ending Forever Wars Must Include Economic Warfare uh, that was published by the Quincy Institute at their Responsible Statecraft platform. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that, and we're going to talk uh, a little bit about some Iran-specific uh, material. Uh, Asal, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, as I said, we'll, we'll kind of do the, the last part of this interview will be more focused on Iran. But I want to start with uh, your column, which which comes, you know, st starts from a different jumping off point, which is Cuba. Yeah. Uh, and when we talk about forever wars, as you write, the, the, the conflict that comes to everyone's mind, of course, is Afghanistan, uh, which has been going on now for, for 20 years. Uh, but as you note, uh, the United States has been waging economic warfare against Cuba for six decades. Um, that, that's not a connection that people make very readily, but I think it's an important one. Uh, and So talk about the ways that economic warfare really resembles, that the effects of economic warfare resemble the effects of the more obvious kinds of warfare and, and how those two things relate to one another. You, you, you talk about that in the piece as well. Well, you know, when we think of warfare, uh, we think of, you know, we think of bombs, we think of invasions, we think of soldiers, but really the, the impacts that we're concerned about is the human impact, right? Like the reason we're concerned about war is because it has a human cost. Uh, it costs human lives. Uh, it devastates infrastructure. It devastates uh, people's ability to, you know, live, basically live their lives normally um, when they are facing uh, the challenges of war. And the reality of it is sanctions and economic strangulation really has very similar consequences. Um, these populations that have lived under U.S. sanctions, especially harsh U.S. sanctions, have experienced, you know, they live in, they're forced into poverty, they lack you know, access to things like basic goods, like medicine, other essential goods. Um, they're, you know, they face unemployment, inflation, things that basically make their ability to live uh, impossible. And so it's another reason why you see immigration, right? Like you see in a war, you see a refugee crisis. But when you have, you know, when you have mass unemployment, when you have an economic situation that doesn't allow you to live in your home country, that also is another factor that pushes people to immigrate. So you have more of these, you know, you have very similar parallels in the impact that they actually have on these societies. And what's interesting is the our political discourse in the United States tends to talk about sanctions like they're benign. It's like, oh, well, you know, we're not going to go to war. We're just going to sanction them. I'm like, well, I mean, people are people die from sanctions when you have um, specialized medicines, like in, in the case of Iran right now, uh, Iran produces about 97% of its own medicine. 
But that 3% is specialized medicine. And so you have people who don't have access to things like their chemo medicines. Well, if you have cancer and you can't have, get chemo medicines, you die. So people die from lack of access to certain goods and certain resources. Um, sanctions on Iraq in the, in the 90s up until the Iraq invasion in 2003. Famously killed, or infamously, I should say, killed hundreds of thousands of kids. Um, and, you know, there's the, there's the sort of infamous clip from Madeleine Albright where she's asked, is this, is this policy worth it? And she responds and says, yes, you know, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially she says, yes, we see it as worth it. Well, we see it as right, worth, it's worth it. worth it's the cost, her. Exactly. I've heard that a half a million children have died. You know, is the price worth it? I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it. So that's, that's precisely the devastation of war. So these things happen under sanctions as well. Um, and, you know, in the case of Cuba, I thought it was fascinating when I, when I wanted to write the piece, I focus on Iran and of course, um, Iran has been under sanctions since 1979. And then you've seen international sanctions, uh, related to the nuclear issue. Um, but Cuba has been under this massive embargo for 60 years. And it's crazy that we don't talk about it that often. And it's crazy that we have it still in place. Like, what policy do you pursue for 60 years that doesn't do what you want it to? <laughs> if we have any policy in place, like, no sane or, or you know, just a, someone of sound mind would never try the same thing for 60 years, get no result, and then think, I'm going to continue on this path. So it really begs <laughs> the question of what's the purpose of this policy? Like, what is our actual objective? Because if it's to change the government in Cuba, it's failed for 60 years. And, you know, we continue to see, even under the Biden administration, um, now an increase in sanctions. That was the response to the protests in Cuba. Let's increase sanctions on Cuba, as if that's magically after 60 years going to, to sort of change things. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of parallels in economic warfare and, you know, sort of hot military warfare, but we rarely talk about sanctions as economic warfare in the mainstream there is i think um it's it's interesting that you i mean as you say the the sort of efficacy of these kind of broad regime change-esque sanctions is is sort of shown by the fact that we've been doing them for 60 years in one case 40 years in another case nothing's changed uh there is uh, it seems like there's been a a move toward in the the sort of post Magnitsky Act era, toward more specific sanctions, we're not going to target the entire country, but we're going to target the Interior Minister, let's say, or we're going to target this official or that official. Is there anything in the the research that suggests that those kinds of sanctions can even sort of change behavior, or or you know, versus whether or not they still have um, you know, a broader impact, even though we call them targeted sanctions, uh, what, what kind of broader effect do they have? Well, broadly speaking, the academic literature on sanctions um, consistently has shown that it has no efficacy, right? It, sanctions are ineffective. Um, so one argument within the literature, um, I believe it's Nicholas Miller that presents this argument, is that sanctions can work as a deterrence um, when that country's economy is dependent on the United States. So basically a country that has already been sanctioned and, and 
you know, such, such as Cuba or such as Iran, where, you know, they've developed economies that are independent of the United States, don't really work to deter. But if you actually have relations with a country, if you actually have an economic tie to them, then the threat of, then you have leverage, then you have real leverage to sort of work with. Um, so there is some argument as to, as to the way that you could use sanctions as a tool. And in this idea of there being targeted sanctions, yeah, I think an argument could be made, except that's not what we're really doing, right? So we use, for instance, in the case of Iran, we use targeted sanctions. We'll sanction uh, individual officials, right, for, for a variety of reasons. But of course, there's also just blanket sanctions on the entirety of the financial sector. So the the sort of problem with our sanctions program is that it's almost an addiction. Which, I mean, much like our entire uh, sort of war apparatus, right? It's the... The problem is in the premise, right? We are trying, we are not trying to get states to cooperate. We are trying to get states to submit. And there's a sort of natural resistance to that from any state, just like there would be from any individual. It's the same kind of psychology behind it, right? If if any state tried to force us in the United States, force, you know, through submission for us to do something, we would very likely resist that. But we engage in cooperation all the time. And so if you look at the case of Iran, the 2015 nuclear deal, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of arguments to say, well, that's because of sanctions as well. It's not as it's not as clear cut as that. Sanctions uh, played a role, international sanctions, but there were other factors that played into the Iranian calculus that brought them to the table to negotiate. What actually ended up happening is when there was the an ability to cooperate, Iran cooperated. But now you find them in a pressure only situation, and so we have. Um, not only under the Trump administration did Iran not budge because it was a pressure-only situation, but now under the Biden administration, for all intents and purposes, they've continued that sort of maximum pressure um, policy, maybe not rhetoric, maybe not in, in words, but in official policy. It's, it's the same. Sanctions are in place. Um, we have not returned to the deal. And negotiations are at a sort of impasse because the U.S. is actually asking for more, ironically, right? Like we haven't even fulfilled our original promise, but we have this expectation that that we should be asking for more. And when you pursue things in this pressure-only policy, you come up at, at a wall of resistance. It's not, you know, it's it's what's fascinating about the way that we talk about politics is we talk about it as if it's separate from just human beings interacting. And there's no situation in which, you know, a person would feel just only pressure and not resist and react uh, in that way. Whereas it's very different if you approach somebody or a state and and try to actually cooperate. And that's not what we're doing. Uh, I think uh, there there's there's there are interesting aspects to the the sort of what we call targeted sanctions as well, where, you know, you can say we're sanctioning the governor of a central bank and that's supposedly a targeted sanction, but it could cut an entire country's financial institutions off from the rest of the world and, and you know, have these huge knock-on effects um, for a, a so-called targeted sanction. It's also interesting that, as you said, as you said, the, the literature sort of suggests that countries that are dependent, economically dependent on the United States could be targeted, could be kind of vulnerable to, to the threat of sanctions, and yet if a country's economically dependent on the United States, chances are we're not going to sanction that, right? They've already like cleared the hurdle uh, to to be safe from this stuff. Uh, but but I think you know all these things kind of feed into a, a larger problem, which is the, to me that there's a, a real 
disconnect um, in terms of making people understand the cost uh, that that these sanctions kind of bring to bear on on countries. Um, you, you know, there's sort of an easy way for leaders in the United States to look tough, to look like they're doing something. Uh, the costs are born entirely out of sight. They're born overseas by people living in Iran, Cuba, uh, et cetera, Venezuela. Um, and they're not, unlike a, a kinetic war, it's not, it's not something that's going to get a lot of media coverage. Maybe every once in a while you'll get a story about, uh, you know, people struggling to find, to, to access medicine or basic needs uh, in one of these countries, but it's not something that's in people's face uh, on a constant basis. How, how can we start to close that gap and kind of uh, make people aware of, of what really is, you know, what really happens when these places uh, face U.S. sanctions? Well, I think you brought up a few important points. First is uh, precisely what you're saying, right? It's not because it doesn't really affect us in the same way that a kinetic war does. Um, we don't see the consequences. And the question becomes, you know, essentially a question of our own humanity. Do we believe in the the sort of rhetoric of human rights and, and rules-based orders that we espouse? We talk about it all the time. Our officials talk about these things all the time. In fact, we sanction people because we say, well, you abused human rights. So based on your abuse of human rights, we're going to sanction you individually. The problem is, is that our sanctions are a human rights violation. This is according to human rights experts and UN experts, right? So there's, there's the value of why we're doing what we're doing. And A, is it, is it actually um, succeeding in terms of attaining any political objective? The answer is no. And what is the human cost? And it's a matter of bringing light to that human cost. Now, we have been in a global pandemic for a year and a half. And actually, that is what has brought to light the effects and the impacts of these sanctions to a certain extent. That this world event is what's uh, put a spotlight on it because, in fact, because it's a global issue, it requires a global response. And so as long as the as long as you know the pandemic exists somewhere, then everybody is at risk. Everybody continues to be at risk. And from the very early stages of the pandemic, you had you know the WHO, you had the UN, uh, you had the Pope basically saying, listen, this is not a time for politicization. This is not a time for politics. This is a time for us to cooperate because we're all affected. There's no there's no borders for a pandemic. Everybody is affected the same. And yet the United States not only did not do anything to lift sanctions during this time, it actually increased sanctions on a state like Iran, right? Like Iran's sanctions from uh, February of 2020, when COVID first hit Iran, it was one of the early countries that was worse hit through now have just increased continuously. So, you know, again, <laughs> it begs the question of what is the intention of our policy? We could we can do whatever we want. We can lift sanctions temporarily on humanitarian grounds. And then if we want to go back to the politics, we could. We could do that. We've chosen not to, um, despite the fact that we know it's preventing essential goods. We know it's preventing medicines from getting through. In some cases, it's complicating the process of securing vaccines. I mean, this is that is not a policy. Again, that is not a policy that hurts 
the elite. That is not a policy that hurts the leadership. That is a policy that only hurts um, the ordinary like population. And in the case of a pandemic, actually really hurts everybody. Because like I said, you, we have to be able to combat this globally. So I do think that COVID has helped create some spotlights on human suffering, right? It's like, well, look, this is something that we've shared and gone through. Even as Americans, we've, you know, we've suffered hundreds of thousands of deaths, um, Americans who lost their jobs. There's all sorts of challenges that we've faced. And so I think that shared experience may have helped in understanding, just sort of scratching the surface of what these other states are going through that don't have a fraction of our wealth and of course are not under sanctions. But something that's also interesting as part of the conversation that I think is often missing is that these are not international sanctions, they're US sanctions, right? So when we not only uh, have you know, UN experts criticize US sanctions for being violations of human rights, they've also said that they go against international norms. Why? Let's look at the case of Cuba. Just weeks before uh, the, the, the protests in Cuba, um, which is now facing uh, it's like one of its worst food shortages in 25 years, there was a vote in the UN uh, on a Security Council resolution calling for the US to lift the Cuban embargo. This is the 29th year consecutively that this vote has taken place. 184 countries voted to lift the embargo. Two countries voted to keep it. That was the United States and Israel. That's not an international order. That's not rules-based systems. That's just ruling. When we decide almost unilaterally what states uh, should suffer through these sanctions and, and what states shouldn't, we're not basing it on any kind of international protocol. We're basing it on our own politics. And so that's the other layer of sanctions that I think is fascinating is that we're sort of um, economically policing the world because not only do we have a formidable military, but we have a formidable economy and our role in the global economy is critical. And so we flex that power, but we flex that power in a way that flies in the face of, like I said, human rights and international norms, because we do it on our own with no support from the international community. Right. Sort of relying on the fact that no country is going to choose to trade with Iran, let's say, if it means losing access to the United States or losing access to American banks. Um, well, actually, since you brought that up, that actually points to another problem that exists with sanctions, because Sometimes sanctions have exemptions, right? Like we have, the US sanctions on Iran have humanitarian exemptions. They don't work because banks just aren't willing to risk it because there's so many sanctions in place because it's not, you know, it's not, it's not good business, basically. And so- Well, and it's, yeah, and often it's been the case that you, you, we open these narrowly defined humanitarian exemptions, but we don't create the funding channels to allow the purchases to go ahead. Exactly. This is, this is interesting. I mean, you talk about the quote, one of the questions being, what is the purpose of these policies? And I know something else that you've written about is the sort of undying and we kind of, kind of shift to, toward more of a focus specifically on Iran here, but the, the never ending refrain that Iran is on the brink of collapse uh, just it's just going to take another. This is like the you know the next six months will be key, which was the whole uh, Iraq war uh, kind of conce uh, conceit. Um, but but there is this kind of perpetual 
argument from hawks, from the regime change crowd, uh, that Iran is always on the brink of failing. It's always on the brink of collapse. We just have to do a little more to nudge it uh, over the edge. Uh, and what do you what do you think is behind that? And the 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 sort of the fact that it's been going on now for almost forty years, uh, and yet it still continues to to hold sway in uh, much of the the foreign policy community. Uh, I think there are uh, a few implications. Um, one, I think there's an ideological reason behind it, right? Um, and oftentimes our foreign policy are, are is guided more by I- ideological uh, sort of ideas than, than logical ones. Um, Iran is seen as, Iran is probably the most vilified state in the United States uh, in terms of the way that it is talked about in the news, the way that politicians talk about Iran, the way that it, it, it's so much so that it pervades American popular culture. And, um, you know, I only noticed this because I am Iranian American. I grew up, I was born and raised in the United States, but, you know, you notice when it's your country of heritage, that's sort of being disparaged on, on like regular, like, <laughs> like cable television programs, right? When there's a just wildly racist comment about Iranians on a show like Friends, you notice it when you're of that heritage. And so a lot of it stems back, you know, before the 1979 revolution, uh, Iran and the United States actually had um, very fruitful relationship. And that's because the king, the Shah that was in power, who was a dictator, um, was actually reinstalled into power by the United States in the 1953 coup. So yes, uh, we had great relationships with a state just like we do now. It doesn't matter if those states are uh, autocratic, if they're despotic, none of that matters as long as they don't challenge sort of like U.S. hegemony and power. And so the Shah didn't do that and, and he he was great for the U.S. to be in power. Um, but the big sort of... N- event in 1979 that really created this this disdain towards Iran is, of course, the embassy seizure of November of 1979. And the reason I say that that is um, such an important factor is, you know, there were there were Saturday Night Live skits about the Lycosta situation, right? Like this was something that was an everyday occurrence uh, in U.S. media. And because it was um, a humiliation to a certain extent, obviously, the fact that you have um, you have these images of Americans blindfolded and their hands tied behind their backs. Those, those images uh, elicited a sort of trauma in the U.S. psyche, much like, you know, the 1953 coup elicited a sort of trauma in the Iranian psyche vis-a-vis the United States, right? There are mutual grievances, um, but we tend to not look at the other side. We tend to only look at our own grievances. And so there is an ideological bent, right? It's just, it's okay to be anti-Iran. It doesn't even matter what they do or don't do. It's just, you know, one of uh, an anecdote that I thought was fascinating in on January 6th, when there was the, the capital attacks, I think it was uh, Susan Collins who said, you know, I thought it was the Iranians. It's just amazing how every Good grief. I hadn't heard that. Oh, my God. Yeah. She said <laughs> when I immediately thought it was the Iranians. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. You know, like what? <laughs> so it's so they've invaded. They've invaded Washington. <laughs> Good Lord. That's just ridiculous. The imagination that it requires to assume <laughs> it's clearly the Iranians. It's like, okay, well, you know. So there is there is an ideological part of it. And when you're inundated with this sort of like negative imagery, it affects the population. Brookings Institute just came out with um, a report that said that 60% of Americans 
believe that Iran possesses nuclear weapons. And in fact, more Americans believe that Iran possesses a nuclear weapon than believe that Israel possesses a nuclear weapon. Now, Iran has no nuclear weapons. Israel has anywhere between 90 and 400. We don't know because they won't tell anyone, right? So just that fact in and of itself, how can, so, how can the majority of Americans believe something that is factually not true? Because they're inundated with this, this, these images and these ideas. I mean, it is coming from somewhere. Um, and that is part of the reason that you see this consistent attitude of um, lawmakers that just refuse diplomacy with Iran on its face. And so you see one of the criticisms of, say, like the JCPOA of the Iran nuclear deal will be uh, the deal was bad. It's like, well, no, according to non-proliferation experts, the deal was not bad. But is there the question is, is there any deal that they would ever take? No, because they're, again, ideologically opposed to diplomacy with Iran. And the other factor is much more concrete. It's less ideological. It's that there is, quite frankly, money to be made in um, whether you're working for a think tank, whether you're getting funding from um, a foreign government, whether you're getting funding basically to push certain policies because there are uh, people who gain from those policies. Uh, and that's not, it's not the American people. It's not like the American populace gains. It's certainly not that these, uh, that the citizenry of these other countries gain anything, but special interests do. And so there's that factor as well, to just be frank. So there's these two sort of things that really allow this conversation to continue with absolutely no logic, right? Like I, I, uh, I've had conversations um, with people who work in offices of lawmakers who say, well, you know, Iran, we don't, we oppose diplomacy because Iran is, uh, you know, a, a bad actor. And my rebuttal to that is always, well, are we forgetting what the point of the deal was? The point of the deal was to prevent them from the ability of acquiring a nuclear weapon. If, in fact, they are a bad actor, according to you, isn't that who you don't want to have a weapon? <laughs> right. Like, you don't do a deal like that with a good actor. <laughs> like, there's no need for it. Yeah. You know, and we can debate this whole, like, the, 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 the sort of dichotomy of good and bad, and, you know, sure, that, that's problematic sure. in and of itself. But just even based on their own logic, the actions make no sense. It's like, well, right. then wouldn't something that prevents them from having a weapon be what you would want? And of course, the problem, like I said, is that sort of ideological, almost, it's ironic that we look to a country like Iran and we call them fanatics, and yet we have a sort of fanatic view when it comes to our politics vis-a-vis Iran. Uh, I I do want to talk a little bit about the state of the negotiations and the sort of hopes for you know the Biden administration's insistence on further further talks which seems like a, a non-starter to me but um the the big I, I i for a little bit to give people a little bit of background the the major development now in the course of what has been you know a few rounds now of negotiations over reviving the 2015 agreement the joint comprehensive plan of action um, is now there is, it's now, you know, those talks have been suspended while Iran goes through a presidential transition. And it's the, um, onset of the Raisi administration, the Ibrahim Raisi administration that's sort of, uh, I think going to set the tone now for, for where things go. Uh, I wonder if you could, taking a step back for a second, give, uh, people a little bit of, 
background on who Raisi is and for people who may not be familiar with how the Iranian political system works, uh, what is the, you know, how much latitude or sort of leeway does a presidential administration have uh, in terms of conducting foreign policy vis-a-vis the Supreme Leader? Well, the foreign policy in Iran uh, really goes through the sort of like national consensus. It's not it's not just the, the, the office of the president, obviously, you know, picks the foreign minister, the foreign ministry are, are the, the people who are part of these negotiations. Um, but that deal would not have taken place without the support of the supreme leader and the supreme leadership. Right. So uh, Iran is sort of divided into this system where it has it has a democratic apparatus. I always use that phrase. It, it something exists that basically, you know, people vote, they have elected officials, there's um uh there are elected representatives, uh, an elected executive branch. But of course those elections are um heavily influenced by non-democratic processes. Uh, and then on top of that, there's the supreme leadership. So there's basically overlaid on this de- democratic apparatus, there's an authoritarian state. Um, and so, you know, the the office of the president is the one that publicly conducts the, the, the US, the, the, sorry, the, the Iran's foreign policy. It's not the supreme leader, for instance, that's ever, you know, speaking publicly on, on foreign uh, news, news outlets or, or you know, traveling to the United Nations to speak or doing any of those things. That's that's the office of the president. But especially in, in such a significant foreign policy matter, the, the supreme leadership certainly has a say. And that's why the idea is that even under um, this much, much more conservative, this, you know, hardliner, if we want to use that phrase, uh, new administration under Raisi, there's still a consensus to return to the JCPOA. But whereas with uh, the moderates and the reformists, people like Rouhani, um, whose foreign minister was Javad Zarif, their vision was the JCPOA is a starting point, right? Here's, here's a, a base for, for diplomacy that we can expand on. Whereas when you get to someone like Raisi, Raisi it's, this is the floor. This is it. Like, this is as much as we can sort of <laughs> hope for in all likelihood. You know, I mean, I, I sort of avoid any kind of predictions because, you know, the nature of anything that is not totally predictable. But, you know, we can reason that within this administration, it is certainly a much less engagement friendly administration, certainly less engagement friendly with the United States. And so, you know, our, our best hope right now is just to return to the deal and avoid further escalation and conflict. Um, and, you know, Raisi is someone who is marred with uh, human rights abuses. He served as he has served uh, within Iran's judicial system, um, most recently as chief ju- judiciary. Uh, and, you know, under his watch, you've seen political prisoners be executed. You've seen, um, you know, he is he certainly has this very dark cloud reigning over him. And, you know, there's calls right now to have have him investigated and do all these things. And I'm to be completely honest, I'm all for that. That's fine. You know, if we want to hold human rights abusers accountable, that's great. The issue is, is that we don't do it consistently. And if you selectively hold abusers accountable, you're not really holding anybody accountable. It's not about accountability. That's again, politics. And so the problem on the US side is when the ICC wants to investigate our war crimes, we say no. 
they have no jurisdiction. They can't do anything. We have our own system of justice. When, you know, when there are accusations of, um, you know, there, last year during uh, the Black Lives Matter protests, there was calls from the UN to have the U.S. investigated for police brutality. I mean, these are things that occur in the U.S., but we basically outright reject anything that criticizes us or could hold us accountable. Not only that, but we also protect other states that are human rights abusers. We protect Israel from being investigated for war crimes. We protect um, Saudi Arabia, despite the fact that it's clearly not a democratic state. It also carries out political executions. It, it does basically all of the things that we criticize Iran for doing, but we have no problem selling them billions of dollars in arms. So this lack of consistency, that's why we. I question, well, do we mean it when we say human rights? No, we don't, because if we did, it would be consistent. This is simply an excuse to politicize the situation with Iran. And again, the issue of the deal has very little to do with any of that. The deal is meant to curb Iran's ability from acquiring a nuclear weapon. Nuclear non-proliferation is itself an existential threat to, again, with no borders, right? Everybody is equally at threat if we see more countries acquiring nuclear weapons. Um, and, you know, we, we don't have to point out the irony that the United States is a country telling other countries that they can or cannot have nuclear weapons when we have the second largest arsenal in the world of nuclear weapons. We have more nuclear weapons than we could use, right? We couldn't even, how are you going to detonate 5,000 nuclear weapons? How much are you going to kill? But we are still building more. We have plans to spend well over a trillion dollars to build more weapons that theoretically we can't use unless we want to kill everything. So, you know, again, there's all of these sort of double standards and ironies of looking to the only country in the world that's ever used a nuclear weapon, again, telling other countries what they can and cannot have. Um, but, you know, where we're at right now in the negotiations is a bit, like I said, it's an, it's an impasse because the U.S. is asking for further talks, a guarantee of further talks. Um, and Iran is asking for a guarantee. Now, this is the difference between the guarantee. The United States is asking <laughs> yes. for Iran to guarantee that they will go beyond this agreement. Right. Iran is asking the United States to guarantee it will uphold this agreement. Just to uphold the one that we have, yes. And it is, it's, again, it, it just flies in the face of basic logic to not see if the roles were reversed, we wouldn't even entertain this idea. It would be laughable if the roles were reversed. If Iran had quit the deal, you know, stopped complying with it, and then come back under a new administration, a new Iranian administration, and said, okay, no, we'll return to compliance, but you guys have to do this first, no one would even entertain that as a possibility because it's ridiculous on its face. You know, the U.S. has to first comply with the deal that exists if there's any question of wanting to wanting to expand. And that's not that's not a, a really, that's not a strong demand. That's a, that's a demand for accountability for, for the deal that we already agreed to. Uh, and I think, again, if we, if the Biden administration fails at securing this deal, that will be a major foreign policy failure for this administration, um, a failure of something that he promised to do, and a failure that was very easily preventable if this administration had actually taken the initiative from its first days to, to return to the deal, to return to compliance, which it has not yet done. The United States is not a party to the deal. It is still outside of the deal. Um, basically, 
almost all of the sanctions that the Trump administration put in place remain in place. And this is all despite the fact that uh, Biden as a candidate strongly like lambasted Trump for all of these decisions, and yet he's continued them. Uh, yeah, I was gonna. I, mean, I was sort of interested in in as you've observed this, and as you say, the you know Biden was a, a critic of the decision to pull out of the JCPOA. Uh, he insisted he would you know restore it, and then got into office. And as you said, the the maximum pressure campaign is almost entirely still there. Uh, there was this dis- demand for you know weeks that Iran had to move first to fix a thing that the United States broke. Um, then they, they kind of softened on that and, and talks began. And I, I, I guess, you know, my question is, uh, were you surprised at the way that they came in and, and sort of, uh, kind of shifted gears and, and decided to leave things in place and, and make this insistence that the Iranians move first? And do you feel like there was a window, uh, uh that was lost because of that? Or were we always going to run into this problem of the election happening, you know, transitioning to a new president. It looks like, you know, Raisi was the guy who they, they were kind of uh, picking to win this election anyway. Uh, were we going to wind up here anyway? Or do you do you genuinely feel like there was a window of time that, that uh, the Biden administration frittered away? There was absolutely a window. There was absolutely a window. And the Biden administration chose, chose to, uh, you know, whether, whether the issue was, you know, when the Biden administration came in, um, their sort of stance was a, to focus on domestic issues. That's fair. Focusing on domestic issues is important. Obviously we were at a very, um, strenuous time domestically uh, with the pandemic, but this was a very easy lift and it is nothing but frustrating to watch the DC beltway, this sort of like, rhetoric that you hear commonly from, from, you know, practitioners and think tankers and things in DC to just complicate things far more than they need to be complicated. And what was fascinating about the Trump administration and president Trump himself was that he sort of lifted that entire veil. It was like, no, he just made a decision and he did it. (laughs) He could, he had the power to do certain things in this particular case. It was his, his power that put these sanctions in place on Iran. It was his power that withdrew the United States from the nuclear deal. That means that President Biden had the exact same power to return to the deal and to lift those sanctions. Despite all the political maneuverings of the Trump administration, the Biden admin could have done that and they chose not to. And in fact, part of the the sort of uh, language that they used was, well, you know, we wanna talk, we wanna talk to everybody. We wanna talk to the people who are opposed to the deal. What is, surprising to me, you know, I, I didn't, this is someone who said himself, nothing will fundamentally change. So it's not as if I expected some kind of revolutionary change from Joe Biden, but this, I was a little bit surprised by actually the, the sort of lack of willingness to take concrete steps to rectify what he called a mistake by the Trump administration and to restore the crowning foreign policy achievement of the administration that he served as vice president that was a little bit surprising, um, the extent to which they sort of didn't take anything seriously. And you brought up the, the Raisi election. Here's something interesting about that. The people who opposed diplomacy. So I, I for instance, someone like me, I was pro-diplomacy. I am pro-diplomacy. We argued that 
and we argue this under maximum pressure too, by the way, that by undermining the moderate and reformist voices in Iran, what we will help do is usher in a hardened Iranian attitude and an administration much like the Raisi administration that we see today. This has been a constant criticism, a constant concern that pro-diplomacy voices have expressed for years, even before the Biden admin. Now, people opposed to diplomacy have been saying over and over again, there's no such thing as moderates. There's no such thing as hardliners. They're all the same. It doesn't matter who the president is. They're all the same. That's their argument, the anti-diplomacy camp. But of course, those exact same people now are saying that, well, you can't negotiate with Raisi. He's a terrible person. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Didn't you guys say there's no difference? So the problem, again, with this sort of uh, the way that the the argument is made is the Biden administration tried to make the point that it doesn't matter. We're, we're not worried about the Iranian elections. And of course, we don't recognize the role that we play in influencing it. Now, that is not to say anything about the undemocratic process in which uh, the Guardian Council vetted and rejected candidates. That is nothing. That is to say nothing about the fact that uh, Iranians themselves were decided to sit out of this election in record numbers. That is, those are those are things that are occurring in Iran, and it is not to you know it's not to blame the U.S. There's a sort of uh, idea in political discussions as if you can't see both parties as a problem, but you can, right? So yes, all of those things can be true. And at the same time, the U.S. influence is true as well. Now, had back in January, on day one, just like Biden, you know, rescinded the Muslim ban, returned to uh, the WHO, returned to the Paris Climate Accord, he did all of these things, right? On day one, he could have returned to the deal and not lifted sanctions, by the way. He could have just symbolically returned to the deal to show that he's serious about returning to the deal. And then they could have had direct negotiations rather than these indirect negotiations um, and discussed, you know, sanctions lifting in return, Iran's return to, to compliance and all of that. Had any of that happened months and months earlier than the Iranian election? Yes. I mean, there's absolutely reason to believe. Uh, and I can't create an alternative history. I can't say for fact, but you can deduce that it would have an impact if Iranians saw sanctions relief if they believed that the reformist camp had any chance of actually getting something done, you know, they were the ones who have argued for years about engagement with the West. If they saw that as, as even mildly successful, then maybe they would have had some motivation to come out and vote. Maybe. But, but of course, we didn't do that. We supported and facilitated the exact concern that uh, pro-diplomacy voices, like I said, have been expressing for years, that by undermining them, by undermining engagement, you're handing the reins to the people who are opposed to engagement, who are opposed to diplomacy with the United States. And who, because they argue that they've been proven true, right? They've been proven correct, that you can't trust the US, that if the US is actually a bad actor, right? Like they just point to the fact that Iran complied by the deal and it was the US that unilaterally decided to pull out of it and to you know, inundate, flood the, I mean, this, the word flood, I think was actually used by, by Pompeo, flood the country with sanctions during a pandemic, it's it's you can see why a population would be sort of sort of totally disaffected from wanting to vote because neither side is giving them anything to hope for. This is um, this is sort of getting into 
developing news, which is a uh, podcast or a lousy way to talk about stories that are happening kind of in the moment. But um, in the last few days, we've seen sort of a, the latest round of what has been an ongoing um, tit for tat campaign uh, by Iran and on the one hand and Israel on the other hand to strike at one another's shipping, uh, you know, sort of make these little maritime uh, attacks at a, at a low level. Um, but, you know, a couple of days ago, there was a drone strike, probably Iranian, on a tanker off the coast of Oman. There was an attempted hijacking. There may or may not have involved Iranian personnel of a tanker uh, near the UAE. Um, do you are you concerned that 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 uh, this kind of thing could uh, impact the chances of getting a, an agreement? Um, and more, kind of running a little bit deeper than that, the the tone of the media coverage of these things, which is has struck me as sort of very one sided, like Iran portraying Iran as the aggressor here, when in fact, uh, you know, the Israelis have have dealt they've given as much as they've taken in in this exchange um but do you maybe you could talk a little bit about how the media coverage of these kinds of things makes it harder uh to to get to an agreement or to engage in diplomacy right i mean uh, in, in what you're saying um that israel has given as much as it's gotten israel's given a lot more actually than it's gotten um i mean you have uh, well over a decade of documented Israeli sabotage uh, inside of Iran. You have Iranian scientists that are assassinated inside of Iran. I mean, if you can you imagine the media coverage if Iran assassinated an Israeli scientist in Israel? It would be, I mean, we, we would likely be in a war at that point because it's not even, it's not even comparable the way that we talk about it. Um, I mean, Israel openly talks about uh, espionage in Iran. It openly talks about uh, the, the new Mossad chief. It talks about continuing, you know, I mean, this is this is premeditated, right? There, he, the new Mossad chief is saying, um, yeah, no, we're going to continue sabotage and assassinations in Iran. And there, that's not a blip. That's just a headline and everybody moves on. As if it's not completely illegal, as if it does not violate Iranian sovereignty, as if it does not... Um, potentially create the context for a conflict that would, if Israel is involved, obviously draw in the United States. They can just, you know, sabotage and and you know, from cyber attacks to explosions to assassinations, and the U.S. included, right? The U.S. also assassinated Iran's top general, another totally illegal, outside of international law, extrajudicial killing um, of uh, an Iranian general. So, there's clearly a double standard in how these how we uh, are engaging in these things. And in terms of media, yes, I mean, Politico had a story that I think it ran for like two weeks about Iranian. <laughs> yeah, veterans. this is a favorite of mine. Yes. <laughs> Moving across the Atlantic. That's it. And that the U.S. responded to that as it's a threat to the United States. So just to be clear, um, Iranian vessels crossing this hemisphere is a threat to the United States. American vessels by Iran's borders in its waters, not a threat at all. We're just allowed to be there. So this, this sort of constant disingenuous arguments that go on, and the media plays a significant role, a significant role in downplaying what 
what we do and what Israel does and just acting as if Iran is this um, constant aggressor, as if it's existing in a vacuum and just randomly going about and doing things. And in terms of how it affects the, the deal and diplomacy, again, diplomacy is not meant for your friends. It's very easy to get along with your friends. That's not a challenge. That's, that's, those are allies. You're supposed to be on the same page. Diplomacy is an alternative to war when it's an adversary. You're not going to war with your allies. You're going to war with your adversaries. So the entire point of diplomacy is to avoid conflict and avoid war and figure out a way to resolve conflicts um, essentially by speaking to one another, by coming to an agreement, by coming to a compromise. And so if anything, in my view, when you see these, when you see these constant escalations in the absence of diplomacy, then that makes a case for why diplomacy is so important. You have to have diplomacy because in its absence, all you have is conflict. All you have is no communication, tit for tat escalations that are unpredictable, right? It is unpredictable which one might spark a larger conflict. At what point do we find ourselves uh, in, in a conflict that we can't as easily de-escalate? And so to my mind, yes, this, this is, if anything, making a further case for why diplomacy is imperative to de-escalate the situation and why it is so important that we actually treat all of these states the same way. It is not one of the, the article is the first thing you brought up. One of the things I said in the article, it is, it is impossible. It is impossible for the United States to talk about an international rules-based system when we violate its mandates. You can't do, there's no such thing then. It only works when we're all accountable to it in the same way. As long as we think we're not accountable, we just gave every other country the green light to say the same thing, including Iran, right? So why is anybody bound to something that we are not ourselves bound to? and we do not hold our friends and our allies accountable to. Um, and like I said, I mean, the, the media coverage of these, of these sort of escalations is incredibly one-sided. It always makes it seem like it is Iran that is the aggressor. When if you actually take a look at the reality on the ground, Iran has been under constant pressure and aggression, not only from the United States, but also from Israel. And, you know, it's, it's, if it starts to act like a caged animal, it's because it is one. What's the alternative? Oh, diplomacy. The thing that we have, well, let me tell you one thing that I find God awful. And I can't believe people actually have the nerve to say this, but you hear again, these sort of like anti-diplomacy people saying things like, well, you know, we've tried diplomacy for 40 years. It's like, what? Who are you? What alternative world are you living in? No, we haven't. We tried diplomacy for like a minute and it worked. For the for the 10 minutes we decided, hey, we're gonna try, we're gonna try to negotiate and see right. if they'll do what they say they're gonna do. They did. So it's it's shocking to sort of find people saying, like, we've tried engagement. No, we haven't. We haven't tried engagement. We've tried engagement once, and the one time we tried it, it worked. Whereas we've tried pressure for decades. And not only has it not worked, but like I said, we don't. We often don't consider how that pressure actually facilitates the very problems that we're trying to prevent. For people who can't see that, that uh, I almost did a spit take there, like a genuine spit take. So uh, I know we're audio only here, but uh, <laughs> just to give you a visual. Uh, uncharacteristically for American prestige, I'm, I'm going to 
try maybe to end this interview on a, 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 a an optimistic note and ask you to um, look ahead a little bit. One of the things that Raisi has talked about as he has made it clear he's not particularly interested in any further diplomacy with the United States beyond restoring the JCPOA is that he he said he would be open to regional diplomacy. There has been some regional diplomacy. We've heard, you know, uh, stories of Iranian diplomats meeting with Emirati diplomats, with Saudi diplomats, and these sort of uh, kind of preliminary-seeming talks on trying to build some uh, stronger, better diplomatic channels in the Gulf. Um, on the principle, sort of the old saw that only Nixon could go to China, is Raisi in a position to actually make some progress on regional diplomacy and actually try to build a, a better relationship in that regard? And do you think that's something that's likely to happen? And and is it a way to sort of get around the, the U.S.-Iranian impasse and kind of uh, you know, maybe build some diplomacy and stabilize the region through a, a different path. Uh, I mean, uh, I'm happy that you're ending on an optimistic note because <laughs> I always, I try, I try my best to be optimistic because, you know, the alternative is genuinely depressing. Like, well, then what's the alternative? We're not going to try, then, then things will just continue to sort of deteriorate. Look, we are not in a full-blown war, I should say. We are certainly, there is an ongoing conflict with Iran. When you assassinate people, there's a significant conflict. This isn't just words. There's actual action being taken. But we are not in a full-blown war with Iran. And there's every reason to believe that not only can we prevent it, but it's actually easily preventable. Iran has clearly shown that it does not want a war or a larger conflict. And I, I, when I say clearly, I'm going back to January of 2020, when arguably the most popular political figure in the country was assassinated by the United States. Um, and, you know, we saw this, the sort of very uh, measured response that Iran took. Um, that is also true of its reaction to the United States withdrawing from the JCPOA, right? The United States withdrew from the JCPOA and reimposed sanctions. Iran complied with the deal for a full year after, and then slowly, step by step, uh, reduced compliance, right? So you see a country that is reacting in a very measured way um, because they're avoiding conflict. And so we can very easily do that. This certainly diplomacy within the region is crucial to that happening. It is critical. Um, and so, yes, I think it's it's positive whenever, you know, I'm not just for diplomacy between the US and Iran, but just diplomacy to resolve conflicts more broadly. And I think there has been a mistaken point of view that you could just, you know, we can just barrel in and get rid of the, the Islamic Republic in Iran as if this is somehow very easily done. It's not. It's very clear that that is not the case. And that when we have attempted regime change, at least over the last 20 years that we can all like witness and see, it has not worked out. It has not worked out well. So why not try an alternative path? And I think that's what some of the, you know, like if you look at a state like Saudi Arabia, I think Saudi Arabia understands that at this point. It's like, well, we tried this approach and here we are. You know, they're inundated still in a war in Yemen where they're just, you know, a Yemeni child, I think, dies every 75 seconds. And, you know, that's certainly happening with the support of the United States. That's been happening with the support of the United States. And 
these conflicts are not resolving themselves. You know, no one is sort of like winning in these situations. So you cannot deny Iran as a significant regional power. And so because you can't deny that fact, engaging them and actually trying to find resolutions to these conflicts that more than anything hurt ordinary people over and over again. I mean, that's who is always being hurt. All of these states remain in power, right? But it's just these ordinary people that are being slaughtered. And it's, it's insane that we're not moving towards diplomatic solutions with more urgency. Um, and that's, I think, the frustration that I've had in looking at how the Biden admin has handled the return to the JCPOA, is that you're not doing it with any sense of urgency, as if, you know, we take this neutral attitude because, yeah, we're not the ones that are affected. But what about the fact that Iran is facing a fifth wave of COVID? What about, you know, like there's just no sort of understanding of the human cost of these policies. So what I'm hoping is that, um, you know, someone like Raisi will have, will pose less of a challenge uh, to the supreme leadership. And because one of the issues that occurs domestically in Iran and Iranian politics is when obviously that there's a, they're, they're not aligned in what they're doing that can cause challenges for how uh, an Iranian administration can carry out it's sort of foreign policy objectives. But if it has a less challenging relationship with the Supreme leadership, then, then we can hope that maybe that can be uh, worked out in a smoother way. Not that, that I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm happy about or encouraging a non-engagement friendly hardliner <laughs> in Iran, but that is what we have, unfortunately. That's just the case as it is. My, my personal desires or that of anyone else has no bearing on the reality. That's who's there now. What we can do, though, is learn how we got here. Maybe, maybe one time we could try to actually take a lesson from what we've done. <laughs> just I give know it a that's shot. Asking a lot. Yeah, I know that's asking a lot. But maybe we could just look at how we got here and not repeat the exact same mistakes for another few decades, if that's a possibility. Um, but yeah, I, I think that if Iran and Saudi and UAE, if these regional actors uh, can, they are actually much more inclined to create stability in their own region than any other country is, including the United States. They are more, they should be more concerned and are more concerned because it affects them directly in a very different way than it affects the United States. Um, but the role that the US will play is it has to be an even-handed broker, right? So for instance, when, you know, when we talk about uh, Iran being, uh, Iran's nuclear program um, ensuring that Iran's nuclear program is civilian, right? We should be ensuring that for everybody in the region. But when there is a move in the region towards creating a non-nuclear zone, again, there are two states that object, the United States and Israel. So at the very least, we cannot undermine efforts in the region to stabilize, to create a security apparatus, um, which benefits everybody. On that note, I think uh, it is sort of optimistic. So I think we'll stop there and uh, leave everybody with a good uh, good feeling as they go home or as they, they finish listening. Uh, Asal Rod, uh, again, Senior Research Fellow at the National Iranian American Council. Thank you so much uh, for doing this. Uh, it was It was great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. 